Saddles to the Sitcom Archive Deep Dive Overdrive, and we have got a special episode this week for you. If you are a regular follower of this series of the Saddle Podcast, today's special guest will be no stranger to you. Stage and screen actor Belinda Lang played the wonderfully fiery, and some might say icy, Kate in both series of the John Sullivan cult classic of Dear John. When it finished in 1987, she went on to play various other TV roles, but it was as Bill in 2.4 Children that made her a firm favourite with audiences. Since then, she's racked up a variety of screen and stage credits and has kindly taken time out from directing a production of The Children at the Salisbury Playhouse. Hello, welcome, Belinda. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure's all ours, eh, Al? It is, absolutely. It's wonderful to see you. You're hardly seeing me, are you? <laughs> my fuzzy wuzzy strange laptop world somehow or other it looks like i've put vaseline on the lens which I gather is a trick, but i haven't yeah just get some windex out and spray it on the lens or probably everything will become clearer so i read an interview belinda where you said that you won't do anything unless there's any sort of comedy in the production or the part you've basically got no interest in it so i was sort of um intrigued by by that was it was it very much part of your plan to get into comedic acting at an early age um, I think that's a slight either misquote or slight exaggeration of something oh, okay. I think <laughs> what my project or I meant to say uh, because I do believe this strongly is I don't believe there is such a thing as a play with no humor in it and if if it if that were presented to me as an option I wouldn't want to do it because uh, my you know, my experience of life is that everything, particularly in retrospect, has its funny side. And it's it's just a human fact. So that is something that I'm always interested in tapping into. Obviously, if you're in a play and something simply hideous is happening on in the story, you're not going to be laughing about it in the moment. But if people, for instance, describe something that happened, they frequently put it in slightly humorous terms to take the edge off how dreadful it was. And, uh, and of course, some of the best humor comes out of some of the worst, the worst mm. things in life. So that's what I meant to say. I don't know where you got the interview, but no, I, I've been in loads of um, very serious plays, but I've always found there's something. I did uh, a play called Duet for One about three, well, pre-COVID anyway, whenever that was. And um it's a it's a, a play about a, a very famous violinist who has multiple sclerosis and is it's one one to one conversations with her analyst who she's been sent to by her husband and she's furious about it she's a very angry woman and um, she's in a hideous situation because she's never going to play again and she was an absolute virtuosa and she simply can't play like that anymore so it's a terribly terribly sad play about a woman having to come to terms with the most awful thing that that could happen to her really and yet it had great humor in it it was terribly sad and and it was very very moving wonderfully written but it had also great humor and those are the kind of plays that I love where you stretch the elastic each and every way um, of course, that's not true in sitcom because the one thing you don't really want are people sobbing or <laughs> well, they miss the laughs. <laughs> Apart from some very brilliant ones. I mean, I got late into um, Afterlife, I think is, um, is wonderful because it really does make you feel very moved and laugh out loud. Mm. So it's, it's rather brilliant. Certainly Gallows Hume is something that um, I think helps you in life as well as in art isn't it you can cope with the bad times if you're if you're able to always see some sort of funny side in things I think well definitely afterwards I mean if you can't during you definitely got to find something otherwise honestly none of us would be able to carry on really no true and it's it's certainly true when you're describing it to other people you know you don't want to be a come down so you might be telling them something hideous but you'll always try and make it a little bit 
entertaining so they find it bearable you don't want other people to get upset I mean I was this is a silly example but many many years ago I was run over quite seriously I was tossed up into the air by a car and I landed on my head in the middle of the road and I thought I was going to die and I think everyone else did as well and I was hauled into an ambulance and taken off to hospital and I they managed to get hold of a, fr- a friend of mine who was staying in my bedsit at the time. I wasn't staying in it. I had been staying with my father. And she raced to the hospital and came into this room where I was prone on some sort of trolley awaiting I don't know what. And I, she walked in. And I seriously didn't know at that stage if I was going to live or die. It certainly felt like a very strange transition in life. She walked in. And I saw the look on her face of unutterable horror. Oh, dear. And so through the side of my mouth, I managed to say, I like your coat, which made her burst out laughing. And neither of us have ever forgotten it. It's just so true, isn't it? You just want to take the sting out of it. And I thought, well, poor woman, she can't see me like this. And then she'll feel terrible if anything really goes wrong. I'll admire her coat. (laughs) And was her coat nice or were you just saying it? (laughs) That's the bit I can't remember. <laughs> I'm sure it was lovely. I'm sure it was. So, so this play that you had, this regional production that you're currently directing the children, that actually sounds quite dark on the face of it. Is the gallows humour in that? Oh, tons, tons. It's uh, she's a wonderful writer, Lucy Kirkwood, and um, it's you know the, on the face of it, as you say, it's a play about three nuclear scientists after a terrible nuclear accident, which has happened because of a tsunami on uh, the south coast. That is the basis for the story. And yet there's tons of humour in it, absolutely tons. Um, it's, the, the, the sentences are brilliantly spun, you know, so that you can... And, and people say ridiculously, um, not, not sort of um, domestic things in the middle of talking about huge issues, which is what we do. So I love the play. It doesn't pull its punches about certain things, and it is, it's very moving as well. I don't like leaving plays feeling depressed. You know, there, I have limits to how much misery I want inflicted on me, I have to admit. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Most, you know, well-directed plays, whatever their nature, whatever they're about, do make you see the, if not the laughter, then the humanity of people. And that, that actually always makes me smile because people are often at their best in terrible situations. I mean, look at the world for the past three years. A lot of people have behaved marvellously. I'm sure there are a lot who haven't, but I've seen, I've seen great behaviour. And, you know, when you're hearing about all this hideousness of the war, and you hear people's bravery and their, and their humour within it and all sorts of extraordinary things. Human beings can be rather magnificent. They can also be ghastly, but <laughs> I like the magnificent side of human beings. And I think it inspires us to be better. And I think people being funny it, it inspires us to be light when we can be, because I think it's important to, to spread some cheer and lightness where we can. Well, I was going to leave this towards the end, um, but you're actually no stranger to podcasts yourself in terms of being involved in one, because you're the narrator of a, a sitcom podcast called Wooden Overcoats, aren't you? <laughs> I'm a mouse. Uh, yes, I am, uh, which has been a sort of extraordinary little... Uh, I Honestly, that, was, that came out. I did an episode of an, a sitcom called Citizen Khan, and there was a young sort of an interny person, man on it, who uh, had come to learn about making sitcoms. And I always, because I suppose my daughters had to go through being an intern more than once, I found myself talking to them and saying, oh, you know, what do you think you're going to do with this knowledge when you have it? And he said, well, I want to do this and that and the other. And I gave him my email address. I said, well, if you ever need any help, let me know. A while later, he emailed me and said, we are making, we're trying to make uh, a sitcom. You know, would you, could you, it's, nobody's getting any money, but would you turn up? And it was at the, um, they'd managed to get, I think for nothing or for very little, the studio at the um, Institute for the Blind in Brixton, where funnily enough, I, I used to do 
years ago, I used to do information broadcasts for them about, you know, don't go down Seymour Road without watching out because there's a thing on the middle of the road. <laughs> right. It's to be my, my little charity offering to the world. So I knew this studio and um, off I went and we made, I think they gave me the whole series at once to do on my own in the, in the little booth, which was quite, I got quite a sore throat by the end of the day. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Oh, well, you know. And they solemnly gave me a box of chocolates at the end of it, which was very sweet of them. And I thought no more about it until a year later. They said, this has gone rather well. Would you mind doing this again? Okay. So I trotted down and did it again. Um, And I think it's lasted about four or five series and seems to be doing terribly well. They seem to be touring on it now as well, I believe, are they? They're, they're, they're so enterprising. I absolutely <laughs> take my hat off to them. And they're such a lovely group of, of uh, young men. They're so, they, they, they're so into it and they're adorable. So good luck to them. Yeah. I've listened to a couple of episodes. I'm going to keep with it and, and get into it. I think it's a whole world that you need to really delve into, isn't it? I've never met any of the other characters because they always have me on my own doing the whole thing. <laughs> Which is misery. <laughs> one of the one of the leads is a, a, um, an actor called Andy Seacombe, who I was at drama school with. And I, I thought when they asked me, I thought, "Oh, that's lovely. I'll I'll see Andy, but I've never seen him." <laughs> oh, oh well. We're conscious that you 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 know quite understandably you don't remember much about about Dear John with it being 36, 37 years ago. Oh, do. well we can we can forgive that it's a long time ago i don't remember much from 1986 i remember getting the job i do remember that it was a very weird experience when i went to meet ray butt who directed it and john sullivan and i went into walked into the bbc uh, in the days when there was a bbc and knock knock on an office come in hello Chat, chat, chat. Yeah, well, you've got the job. And I left feeling rather annoyed. I'm thinking, (laughs) this is outrageous. They can't offer me this on the basis of just me turning up and and chatting to them for a little bit. I don't don't feel as if they've tested me out probably. I mean, this this doesn't seem right. Of course, now I'd be delighted. Now you have to (laughs) go through hoops to get the smallest part in anything. So um, I laugh now and I think of how annoyed I was by being offered a job on the spot. <laughs> Do you think that was because they already had you very much in mind and it was written with you in mind and it was just a formality? Wouldn't have been. I was so young and I hadn't really done anything apart from I'd been in a uh, a classic series. It was my first proper TV job called To Serve Them All My Days. My parents were actors and to them, television, I mean, really in uh, their era, it was a secondary thing, you know, it was the theatre and, and television was something you you might do it or you might not, but it wasn't considered important. So I did this classic series, which, as I say, was successful and successful in um, in the in the States as well. And instead of thinking, right, well, that was a good thing to do. I'll now build on this. I promptly went into the tour of some nonsense. So, you know, that was that. <laughs> and then uh, a year or two later, I was called in for Dear John. But. I'd never done any comedy on TV. I mean, I had no idea. I honestly think in those days, there was just more. First of all, a director was allowed to cast without a bunch of executives coming in and saying, oh, no, we need to see this, this and this. And, um, things were more casual is the wrong word, but there was more trust in you're making a programme mm. over to you and, and, and people worked on their instincts. And there were, you know, many cases of programs that were being made where the producers and executives had nothing to do with the making of and would just leave things to happen and endings of stories hadn't even been written and they would just trust that this would occur and that something creative would happen and and it would. I I guess when when you're dealing with someone like John Sullivan who's who's in control of his entire project. It's such a juxtaposition to how things work nowadays with writing rooms for comedies. And I I was listening to a David Tennant podcast where Tina Fey was telling a story about how the Prime Minister of the time, David Cameron, went and saw her with a specific remit of 
coming over to talk to the television companies about taking an American approach to writing, like 24 episodes per series. And Tina Fey said, well, I'm not doing that because we love what you guys do. You know, six episodes gives you the, the range to be creative and retain control more so than what we get in America. It just makes sense to do it that way to me. But also it's it's character driven then, you know, um, because Andrew Marshall wrote 2.4 Children. He wrote nearly every single episode and there were lots of them. And they were character based. Also, he was writing for us, you know, after the first series. And then after that, when when Gary died, I went and did an episode of my family. And I was absolutely amazed that they had a team of a team of writers upstairs so we were all, we did a read through and then we had to sit and wait while people went upstairs and they um, wrote more, more jokes or different jokes and they came down and we read it again. This went on every day. They would change the script every day. And actually, they were very clever and funny and, and it was all very brilliant, but a completely different scenario, completely mm. different. In the in the days when I was doing those sitcoms, it was very much... Um, a kind of family thing you you know everyone was it was a bit like rep I mean repertory theatre on tv you know you just worked as a little company and it was very comfortable isn't the word because actually it's quite hard work if you're doing it uh week in hard work's not quite but it's not you know you do have to concentrate there's a lot of learning to do and you have to do things very fast it's a bloody brilliant training for for anything in the theater on tv because of the speed at which you just have to go get on with it you know <laughs> and you've got to be funny <laughs> um and and i i it's something i really enjoy because i like the discipline of it but i like the family atmosphere of it as well i found um doing the other ones with all the executives. It's fine and it's very slick and it's very good, but it's not the same. Well, it's funny you mentioned My Family and 2.4 Children because 2.4 Children is often kind of seen as a precursor to to My Family. And then you, you've already outlined for us the, the difference in approach between the two shows having having popped up in, in My Family as well. And 2.4 Children, I guess, was quite unique in many ways because it frequently contained these sort of um, fantasy sequences or, or bits of magical realism, which made it very innovative for, for its time. That must have been creatively so much fun to do. It was. I mean, you'd, look, you'd comb the script for what's he come up with this time? Because he's, he's amazing, Andrew Marshall. He's just got the most extraordinary imagination. And, it's, and of course, I was not as up on the TV of the day as um, as other members of the cast. And so Gary was always saying to me, you get to something that was supposed to be a joke. And I go, I didn't understand this one. He goes, oh, where have you been? <laughs> but all, all the other influences were old Hollywood movies and I knew where I was with them. So, and lots of stuff, the stuff from the Lucy show and all that kind of thing. And then this totally surreal element, which got more and more bizarre because we'd get letters there was an episode in which I think I had to post a dog through a letterbox. And there were so many letters of rage about this that he just wrote more and more dreadful things <laughs> happening to animals. <laughs> it's awful. But uh, nothing ever did happen to an animal, I hasten to add. Crops of nonsense. But John Sullivan, on the other hand, of course, was just the master of, of dialogue and situation. Just these wonderful wonderful um lines i mean just line after line after line fabulous they were little playlists. We, we've spent so much time laughing at some of the lines and, and it's characters that you that you're not expecting to come out with such funny funny lines characters that are not deemed to be funny characters that some of the lines that that they're, they're given are absolute gifts they're absolutely brilliant i should watch it actually i mean i don't think i watched it at the time Mm. I hate watching myself on television. <laughs> uh, I just don't look at all the way I think I. It's not even that I don't look the same. I don't feel I'm portraying what I want to, and I think, well, that that's not what I thought I was doing at all. But anyway, uh, so I find it, I find it hard. But I'd probably manage it now because it's so long ago. It'd be like watching a different person. Mm. So you've never ever seen it, I presume, from that. I've seen little, little, little bits of it. I mean, I watch little bits of things. You have to really first of all you have to watch what the other people are doing so that you can appreciate them and say 
you know, you're amazing or, or whatever, because that's important. Um, and, uh, and you do have to watch yourself a little bit just to make sure you're on the right track. Because there are, you know, one has got one's habits and you see mm. them and think, oh, God, I must stop doing that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just done a ridiculous TV thing for Brickbox last year and they sent me all the episodes. I thought, oh, God, I don't think I can face this because I'm <laughs> playing a, an old lady. Um, oh, is this the Sister Boniface mysteries? Yes. Uh, and I thought, oh, God, I bet I'm so over the top and I'll have to have a look. And then I thought, no, come on, pull yourself together because Lorna Watson, this wonderful comedian, plays the lead sister Boniface. I thought, I'm going to watch, watch this episode for her. And you have to because I, I might be going back to do it again. I want to be able to appreciate what she's doing, never mind what I'm doing. So so I, I did watch and I got a bit of a fright when I came <laughs> on. But uh, she was wonderful, so that was all right. <laughs> now I might have a look at the Dear Johns because... They were spectacularly well written, and it's uh, it and it. I, I was talking about this the other day. I had to do um, an interview. Comedy was um, one of the topics, and I still feel that comedy has changed so much. And there's so much comedy now that's based on scoring points of other people and being unpleasant about other people. And although within Dear John, of course, the characters are beastly about each other. It's just a different way of doing it. It's a it's a much kinder it's a much kinder thing, and I rather miss that actually. I do think I do think comedy has got very sharp actually, and there is a lot of nastiness now in comedy, and I just it's not my thing. I don't like it. I love a bitchy character, you know, and a mm. Maggie Smith character that there's nothing funnier, but actual nastiness. I think it's the difference between laughing at someone who's written as you know you're laughing at that character and his set of prejudices or his his behavior makes him the butt of the joke rather than the nastiness that he's perpetrating on other people yeah. which which it, it, i must admit is is part of my problem with some of ricky gervais's work it's too close to the knuckle some of his work makes me kind of icky and makes and me I, oh i can't look at why, it that's why i only caught up with afterlife so late because i couldn't watch the office it made me upset it just sort of hurt my tummy but afterlife <laughs> yeah. i think it's a it's just much softer approach and it's much kinder and the, and there's a lot of love in it i think I, has, I think comedy has to have love in it it just does you have to love your audience and you have to yeah it's a it's a sort of little little love capsule, really. <laughs> Do you have a family, Louise? No, we couldn't. My husband had a vein. You, you, you spoke earlier about how you got the role of, of, of Kate. What was it like working under the team of John Sullivan and, and Ray Butt? And do you think that their approach has had any influence on the way that you think about directing and how you go about that work? Well, I only direct in the theatre and it is very, it's very different. We don't have, we, of course, there's a time scale and you never have enough time, but it's not the same as TV, which is, you know, to the minute, especially with a situation comedy, that's to the minute. And so, you know, it, there's a very technical element to working in TV. They were, it was a very male atmosphere, actually. They were quite laddish in a way that we don't have so much now. I liked it. I mean, I just found it, you know, it was it was a very new thing for me, a very new world to be in, and uh, and it was a it was you know they 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 wore it very lightly. You know, they just got on with it. It's like okay, come on, right? You know, that line, this stand there. Do, it was I yeah, it was very efficient, fun, um, and when I say laddish, I mean it was that kind of that kind of humour. It was there was nothing soft or feminine about the atmosphere it was just get on with it but in a really fun way yeah they, they were they were they were great you know they were just they just knew what they were doing and they knew how to do it there was there wasn't there was no doubt really you know as I say they just got on with it you mentioned laddish there which leads me on nicely to the character of Kirk <laughs> who we have in the podcast we have a we have a, a a love-hate relationship with with kirk peter blake however who played kirk 
he was a handsome and charming man. Was it tough to act so repelled to him <laughs> when you were when you were playing Kate? No, I, I, I mean, I loved acting repelled him. That was such fun. I knew Peter from before because Peter was in a production of Joseph and His Amazing Dreamcoat with my mother, who was an oh, wow. actress. I, I knew him anyway, and he really was Jack the Lad in real life. Uh, but I had a tremendous soft spot for him because you know he was he was he was a gloriously oh he he couldn't exist now he wouldn't be allowed <laughs> to exist but i absolutely adored him and i loved i loved playing that and he enjoyed i mean we stayed friends and pen pals actually because he moved to france and uh i just i was terribly fond of him so no it wasn't difficult i loved it it's not it's not if you if actually i think it's probably more difficult to do that if you don't like somebody, yeah. probably more difficult to play that. But because I did, no, I loved it. And I love those kind of characters as well. So you didn't have to sort of deploy any uh, method acting and be horrible to him off camera? No, no, no. I just used to first start laughing and just say something absolutely vile and then the camera go off. Yeah. Our opinion as well is that Kate should never have ended up with Kirk. Did you have in your head, though, when you were playing the character of Kate, did you have... Any kind of sort of resolution to how how she should have ended up as a character? No, absolutely no, no idea. Absolutely not. And you know, in in those, I think nowadays one would imagine that a character in a comedy, even in a, in a situation comedy, might have an arc, as it were, and might ask those questions. But in those days, you didn't even ask those questions. And certainly at that age. I just would, you know, it was next episode, please. Yeah. So, no. I mean, occasionally, actually, Peter was, was he would say, I don't, I don't like, you know, I, I think I should have a better scene here or whatever. He was more concerned about what his character should be doing or not. And I just went along for the ride. And <laughs> mm, I, yeah. I, I never found anything in the scripts that I thought, well, I'm not doing this or I can't do that or she wouldn't do this or what's this leading to? Um, mm. it, it just didn't feel like that. You know, when you're in the hands of Ray Butt and John Sullivan, you're just in safe hands. Mm. And in those days, of course, we didn't have the fear of a political backlash um, you know, we didn't have mm. Twitter or anything. So we could be tasteless. We could be, you know, do you could do anything, really. And we weren't questioning anything. We were just just doing the script and um, trying to be funny. It's interesting you say that because I happen to watch, I don't know if you've ever come across the US version of Dear John that was made subsequently. No, I knew they were doing it. They're all on YouTube and I happened to watch one yesterday just you know had some spare time and i just put one on and it was um i've not told you this al but it was the episode where sylvia reveals she had a cross-dressing husband yep and she comes in and she says this and john the who's played by judd hirsch in the american version he isn't at the one-to-one club that night because he had some other event the way it turns out is that john bumps into sylvia's ex-husband in drag and starts a relationship with him I mean, we talk about the hashtag different times on our podcast, that things you wouldn't get away with these days. And it was far worse on this US version. The amount of really quite close to the bone mm. comments about, you know, quite transphobic things as they would be known these days, and rightly so, that were said. I'm not sure if John Sullivan worked on this particular script and the American remake. John Sullivan's scripts for the original just about walked that fine line, even, even allowing for the 35-year difference. So it's interesting. Yeah. It is interesting. It really is. Mm. I mean, Kirk as a character, so un-PC, isn't he? I mean, you just, <laughs> I don't think you, you couldn't write that character now. Rumour has it as well that Dear John Mines have continued for a third series had Ralph Bates not fallen ill. Is there any truth in that, do, do you know? And any idea where John Sullivan might have taken the story? I honestly don't know, and I didn't... I, I'm not sure. They went off on tour. They tried to get me to go off on a tour, a theatre tour, which I didn't want to do mm. because I don't think the two things are compatible. I, 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 I don't like sitcom on stage. Um, mm. I, you know, I don't know the answer to that. It always did seem a mystery to me that there were only ever two series. And 
I'm sure I at one point knew the answer, but I can't remember what it is. I was I was very good friends with Ralph Bates and his lovely wife, Virginia. And um, I used to stay with them. They were very kind to me. Um, and they had lived in, well, she still does live in a lovely house in West London. And they used to have me over and feed me and look after me. And it was, it was a very, very nice time. And I carried on doing that for a while. So I, I'm not sure if it was to do with him getting ill. Honestly, I don't know the answer. It sounds like you made a lot of friends on 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 the set of of, of Dear John, you've mentioned Ralph Bates and and Peter Blake. Was it was it that the general feeling when you were when you were making the TV series? Yeah, we were. I mean, it was it was, it was as I say, it was it was like two point four, a little family of people working together. You know, you and if it had gone on longer, I'm sure we'd have all got um, even closer. You know, sadly, a number of them are not with us anymore. It seems inconceivable now when you talk about it. And, just think, goodness, how, I mean, Ralph Bates, I still can't believe he's not there somewhere. I still, you know, sometimes go past his house and think, so odd that he's not in there. Because um, I'd been a great fan of his from all his, he was rather a darkly handsome hammer horror star. Mm. And uh, I think this was quite a departure for him um, doing this, this comedy. We used to talk about... Uh, talk about comedy and how you do situation comedy and stuff quite a lot. He was he was wonderful in it and he was such a delightful man. Charming, really gentle soul. Liked him tremendously. And uh, I'm sure I haven't seen his son for years. I'm sure he's turned out to be a chip of the old block. <laughs> he surprised us with the memories he had. I mean, he was telling us how his mum and dad ended up holding sort of the rap parties that turned into light entertainment yeah. extravagances. <laughs> oh, they were, those parties, I mean, uh, amazing. Well, there were two of them and they were incredible because they had what seemed to me then, maybe it still would, an enormous living room with black and white parquet tiled floor. And she had a shop, Virginia, in um, uh, Holland Park. This wonderful, it was called Virginia's, and it was full of the most incredible, what do we call it now? Not quite antiques, but they were sort of um, bric-a-brac, but posh. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful Victorian clothes and, and bits of furniture. She had a marvellous eye. And she used to get up at four o'clock every morning and go off and hunt for all these things. Retro, you know, way ahead of its time. And it was probably the only shop in London that really did that. So people used to come for miles. And her home was a reflection of this great taste that uh, that she still has. And so, you know, they gave these parties that were, none of us lived in anything like that. I mean, I was living in a bedsit and, uh, oh God, it was just gorgeous. And these parties would go on for hours. <laughs> in my head, it sort of Sometimes. looks like something from Eyes Wide Shut now. I'm sure that isn't correct. <laughs> We were quite well behaved on that front. (laughs) (laughs) Everything else was up for grabs. (laughs) Your character, Kate, she she leaves the one-to-one club and and she left um, Dear John sort of halfway through the the second series to go travelling and then returned for for, for the finale. Was that written into the show as a creative decision from John Sullivan or was that sort of driven by by yourself because we, we we thought oh god she's disappeared that sounds like that sound i don't remember that but what that sounds to me like is unavailability mm. i think it probably was if i ever looked up my old books that i was doing something else and now you're kind of held under contract so that you can't do anything else and they'll say next year we you know we own you for these months and I suspect in those days that even if they had owned me for those months, they'd have let me go because they were very sweet. Like Andrew Marshall on 2.4, and I used to say, you know, don't worry, anyone who wants to have a baby or anything you want to do, I'll write it <laughs> That's in. That's really generous, isn't it? That's lovely. You would have had to change the name of the show, though, wouldn't you? It would have been 3.4 children or something. <laughs> you would have. You would have. <laughs> John Sullivan, just, we just touched again on John Sullivan. He's obviously revered as one of the greatest comedy 
comedy writers in the UK. A rare criticism, though, is that he's not seen to be great at writing women. Do you think that more could have been done with the Kate character? Uh, well, honestly, it's so long ago. I, I do remember, as I say, the atmosphere was laddish. It was definitely a male. I felt they were very male. I didn't feel they particularly understood women or wanted to. But I didn't mind in terms of my character because in those days, you know, I wasn't looking for character development. Now, I would go, oh, come on, this is all very linear. You know, come on, can, can I not do the same week after week? I was just pleased to, pleased to be there. Maybe if we'd gone on to do a third series, I, I might have started to get a bit beady about it because, you know, you do start to go... Hang on a minute. <laughs> Feet under the table situation, isn't it? <laughs> you can say something after you've been there a while. I mean, I should think it's probably a fair criticism. I don't think women were his interest in, in that way. His humour is is a male, male humour, but I still find it terribly funny. It's quite amusing that none of the characters... Well, well, Kate and Louise don't have surnames, and Mrs Arnott and Mrs Lemensky <laughs> don't have first names. <laughs> so it's like they're half-drawn characters. Yeah, well, that's quite telling, isn't it? And thought of that. Yeah. No, I mean, I certainly was not playing a rounded character, um, and neither did I work on it as if it were a rounded character. And maybe that's a terrible flaw. But it, it honestly, now it would occur to me. In fact, not many years later, it would occur to me. But at that time, yeah, I just wasn't thinking like that. Probably, you know, probably says a bad thing about me as a young actress. But I'm <laughs> just sort of getting on with it. Just happy to be there. I'm guessing it's it, we, we we sort of described it as a classic, a John Sullivan classic, and then sort of stopped ourselves and said it's more of a cult classic, isn't it? It's more of a it's not a show that everybody knows. Um, no. But it was nice to revisit having seen it as a as a as quite a young child, but watching it as an adult, you see you, you see it in a totally different light, yeah. and it's it's but it's just as interesting. There's lot there's so much to sort of dig into. Whoever's watching it, I think. Well, I'll have to have a look. I'll have to have a look. Yeah. But no, and I mean, as I said before, further answer to your question, you know, as television was not my interest, I really didn't think mm. I'd be working in television much. It wasn't particularly what I wanted to do. So I wasn't delving into it in the way that I would. Uh, yeah. I wasn't expecting the same from it. I was thinking, oh, this is a sitcom on TV. So I would give all my thought to, to, to the theatre work of course now you wouldn't dream of, of uh, making that division <laughs> it seems mad <laughs> did you find then um with that being your first sort of major tv role did you find that suddenly you were getting recognized in the street and people were sort of shouting things like frigid or <laughs> tiger at you or anything like that or would, did you have like that blessed an anonymity that comes with yeah i was i didn't get big recognition from that Funnily enough, I didn't get enormous recognition no. from 2.4 children. It would only happen in really places like supermarkets, which I suppose is where people would expect to see yeah. my character. So people go, hello, Bill, and I go. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you, if you slammed a door, you'd get told off for that, I'm sure. <laughs> there were loads of sort of musical slash Broadway scenes that were shot as sort of surreal closings, and there was the infamous Spice Girls scene that you guys did on that? Because it's all been shown on BBC lately. It's all on iPlayer and, and Britbox 2.4 Children. So it's sort of finding new audience lately. And I was wondering, did you get to pick which Spice Girl you would be for that sequence? Or, or were you allocated a Spice Girl? I, I was allocated my Spice Girl. <laughs> were you happy um, with your, with your select, with uh, who you were allocated? God, I don't remember. I mean, honestly, I, I... I think you were Victoria. Um, oh, well, in that case, yes, very happy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, I think I was allocated because physically I probably most resembled her um, in terms of being skinny and having the right haircut. <laughs> <laughs> what about the, the sort of wacky opening sequences in the latter series? There was that, I think, series six, there was like a Morris, uh, not Morris dancing, more like um, what it, river dance type sequence. Yeah, well, that was me. Oh, okay. That came about by accident because... They decided they wanted to do a groovier start to the program, more American style. So they said, we're going to come into this studio and you just have to, we're going to have this white background, which we can, I don't know, it's sort of magic. 
don't ask me some technical magicness that you and we would come on and go hi to camera or whatever it was and we were all so useless at it particularly me I said I'm sorry I just I'm so embarrassed I can't do this this is awful uh, and they said well you know what do you want I said well, look, can we just do something funny? Let's let and river dance was huge at the time, absolutely huge. And I said, why don't we just do river dance? And they did it for a joke to sort of keep me happy. And then they kept it. <laughs> it's I think it's the most memorable opening sequence to the show because it was, it was different every time, every series, wasn't it? More or less. Oh God, honestly, I don't remember. I just remember this hideous, hideous day in front of this white screen thinking, I can't walk up to the screen going, go hi, or whatever it was we were meant to be doing. It was Because I know in, at the time, I think American sitcoms had these kind of intros with people kind of, or doing a little, you know, thing with a hat or, you know, whatever. That's more of a Croft and Perry thing, isn't it? You have been watching and then they all sort of give you a little wink to the camera. Well, whatever it was, I just hopelessly couldn't do it. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> so we landed up doing that, which uh, I, I must say, I, I loved it. I thought it was really funny, but I loved all the surreal things. And I loved doing all the musicals because I had wanted to do musicals when I was young and it was the closest I've ever got to doing. <laughs> Were there any sexual problems? What springs to mind when I say the words 2.4 children to you? An average family unit? What about a 90s sitcom about a family? No? Does this ring any bells? Yes, that family, the Porters. You might remember or have been told that it was just an average and predictable family sitcom, but throw in some realism, pathos, dark humour, spiritualism, and surreal plot lines, including cursed chain letters, poisonous cobras, the accidental killing of a neighbour's pets, a cryogenically frozen father-in-law, and believing Dracula had moved in next door, to name but a few, the Porter family, as well as the sitcom, were far from average. Join me, J.D. Collins, and 2.4 Children fans, and Andrew Marshall, the creator of the series, who provide memories of working on his classic series in Don't Slam Your Podcast, now available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. What about um, working with Liz Smith, who was both your mother and your auntie? She played her own twin sister, didn't she, in the show? She did. She was great. All accounts from people who worked on shows like The Royal Family and The Vicar of Dibley was that she was an absolute riot, even when, they weren't, even when the cameras were off. Is that your experience with her? She actually, not so much an absolute riot. She actually was quite a serious actress. She was very, um, you know, she, she was really invested in what she was doing and uh, yeah. had, had a lot to say about it. And I, I really admired that. I really, you know, she wasn't young at that point. And, oh, I, I, she was brilliant as well. I mean, I had a sitcom uh, written for her and Dora Bryan, which I desperately tried to get made, um, written by... Uh, a wonderful writer called Bob Mason, because Liz Smith and Dora Bryan were huge best friends. And I thought they were both brilliant. So I said, well, why don't you write a sitcom for Liz Smith and Dora Bryan? I'll try and get the BBC to do it. And we got as far as sort of reading it, doing a big reading at the BBC, and they were fabulous. And uh, the answer from the BBC was... I'm afraid we won't be doing this because we've already got a comedy about old people, which was Last of the Summer Wine, I think. And I thought, Jesus Christ. So that's it, is it? You're allowed. It's just one. one. Is that, is that the, you're, you're up to your limit. I, I was so shocked and so disappointed for them because they would have been fabulous, fabulous together. And where it's a, it's a missing sitcom. I feel quite sad that that was never a thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it would have been. And it was very, because Bob was a wonderful writer, it was very eccentric. And it was set up, um, was it Bolton? I can't remember. But it was set up north anyway. And it was great lines for them. I probably got it buried somewhere, but I can't imagine anyone else doing it apart from them. Oh, we'll all recreate it for you on the podcast. We'll read all the parts. <laughs> CGI them. I wish. I wish, but no. Fantastic actress. 
What about Barbara Lott, who is also a, a very famous sitcom matriarch? She was also on 2.4, wasn't she? She was indeed. Yeah, she was another great one. Well, I love all that generation of fantastic performers, fantastic actresses. And, yeah. uh, you know, we were so lucky to, to get them. Yeah. It was incredible, actually, what people would come in and do. So that was mm. such a great pleasure, too, when, you know, one's been a fan of these people. And then it feels to me that 2.4 Children has almost been given the second life by the new, by it now being on BritBox and, and on our yeah, no Loads idea. of people are talking about it. Yeah. You've, you've now solved a mystery for me because a friend of mine said to me a few days ago, oh, I was had nothing better to do, and I landed up watching a, an episode of your old sitcom, Two Point Four, which I'd never seen. And oh, weren't we young? She said, "Oh, we were so young." And I thought, "Oh, great." <laughs> and I thought, "Why, why, and where is she watching this?" So, and it's quite interesting because the reason they never got made into, um, or they, it was very difficult to get it repeated or made onto DVD because of the rights for all the music oh. and Andrew used to say I made a big mistake because it's so expensive to buy that nobody's going to to do it so it never really got much of a showing what a show really interesting I mean, at least yeah. it's come right it's come full circle now there's a also a podcast that's dedicated to 2.4 children which is quite popular well wow. you may have heard of it it's called uh, don't slam your podcast <laughs> really? And, uh, yeah, he's had he's had John Pickard on there and Andrew Marshall and uh, you have to forgive me. What was the name of the lady who played Rona in Two Point Four? Julia Hills. Julia Hills, of course. Yeah, yeah. He does what we do with with every series with a different sitcom. Obviously, with Two Point Four Children, there's eight series worth, so it <laughs> it keeps him busy sort of forever. I think. Well, if you can get Gary on, um, I'll I'll be very <laughs> pleased. <laughs> yeah, that would be a hell of an accomplishment <laughs> talking to gary when we were doing um the good life in our first series we came across a, a little snippet of information richard Bryars was a world-class swearer and that he could particularly in a theater backstage he would out swear anybody in a competition <laughs> brian blessed and people like that and rumor has it that gary olson was quite similar <laughs> he was a prolific swearer is that something that you remember as Part of his uh, genetic makeup or personality? Oh, I don't remember that at all. Maybe I swear as well. I don't know. I don't remember that at all. <laughs> Maybe he was. Maybe he reined it in around you. I, no, he wouldn't have done, believe you me. Uh, <laughs> I was the butt of most of his jokes. Um, no, I, don't, I honestly don't remember that. I must ask Julia. Uh, no. Maybe he was. No, no, no recall of him swearing. Have you got a favourite sort of memory of, of working with Gary? Uh, I mean, there's so much to pick from, I guess. I have a very poignant memory of working with him, of us doing what turned into the last ever episode, though none of us knew it was going to be. Because um, Gary, but Gary and I both had stomach upsets during the last few episodes that we ever did. And mine turned out to be Salmonella. Um, and he, his turned out to be pancreatic cancer. But of course, who knew at the time? Nobody. And he, Gary had always wanted to have, he wanted, there were these um, BBC four films that were being made at the time. And he always wanted to get into his contract that he would do another series of 2.4 if he could do one of these, um, you know, meaty, parts in something and they would go well look don't be funny we can't we're not linked to that department so no uh, but he, he he never felt that he was fully extending his range and that you know he I think he, he felt he was being slightly boxed in with the comedy um, mm. and he never really appreciated how brilliant he was I mean he he was a brilliant comedian um, and had the most wonderful presence and so he was he had an ambivalent attitude to doing the sitcom because it really wasn't going to be the pinnacle of everything he thought he'd achieve and mm. then when we were doing this last episode and he was still not feeling very well and we were sitting 
I think there was a blackout in it and we were sitting in candlelight and the characters all reminisce about everything that's happened to them. Uh, and I remember him saying, blimey, this feels like a sort of weird ending, doesn't it? Mm. And I, I thought at the time it actually does. There was something about it that felt superstitiously wrong. And then God, lo and behold, not long after, he rang and said, I'm afraid to say, I've been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, and there was still, he was still talking about being able to manage doing another series. <laughs> and that he would just somehow, Gary and um, Andrew would somehow or other write another series in which he could be thinner, in which we would, he would, actually there was, the discussion was going to be that he'd be ill in bed for the series. Mm-hmm. And, and Gary had, oh yeah, I'd missed out the sort of crucial bit of, of this last, doing this last episode, was that Gary said, you know, I really love doing this series and I really do want to do it again. And he'd suddenly sort of become, he'd had two children of his own. He'd suddenly sort of landed in the centre of himself and thought, this is good. I'm fine. This is fine. And of course, <sighs> died mm. not that long after. And I've never forgotten that because it seems such a life lesson somehow to try and be happy with what you've got when you've got it. You know? <laughs> uh, it's difficult. It's a hard one. It's a hard one. True. But we were actually thinking of doing a series with him in bed. Extraordinary now, if you think about wow. it. I know. Mm. Yeah. I'm sure Andrew Marshall would have managed this somehow as well. He was determined to manage it if Gary wanted to do it because, you know, yeah. Gary did want to do it. He wanted to, I think, somehow or other, it, it would feel like staying alive for, for longer or maybe denying death. It's so complicated, isn't it? I know Freddie Mercury took that approach towards his, his last years, that he wanted to record as much as possible so more of his work was out there. Oh, he did, yeah. And I guess there's something to be said for that. It's hard, it's hard to imagine, yeah. hard to imagine. Mm. So sad. Mum not back yet? No. Where is she, by the way? She just said, don't worry. Oh. You all right? Yeah. yeah. I just wondered if she'd be back by now. I wanted to check something with her. Oh. I have to ring back this evening to say I'm still interested, but I'm sure she'll think the same as me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't keep it to myself much longer anyway. It's so great. What? <laughs> I've got a jump! <laughs> It would be remiss of us not to mention Second Thoughts, which was a, another sitcom you had a, a major role in as Liza, alongside Linda Bellingham and James Bolam. Another charming character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if memory serves, you were quite posh and uh, appear in one episode in a leather cat suit in that show. <laughs> <laughs> Highly likely. Was that a fun show to do? Um, I had amazing costumes in that. It was all about the costumes, as far as I was concerned. Uh, and lots of shoulder pads. It was that era. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were dressed as an Emma Peel lookalike in this particular one that we, we saw oh, a clip good. of. <laughs> From Posh Spice to Emma Peel or the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. I'd love to have been Emma Peel, so that would have appealed haha, to me. Um, that would have been a fantasy. No, that series was written by um, Jan Etherington and Gavin Petrie, and, and they are also wonderful writers and Jan writes a series that's on the radio called Conversations from a Marriage which is absolutely wonderful um radio series they're 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 great I mean they make it look so easy they're just Mm. honestly they can make anything funny Mm. this conversation from marriage that's all it is just conversations between a married couple and it's brilliant, brilliant. What about, um, you You appeared in one episode of Rosemary and Time, because we're fans of Felicity Kendall, obviously, from, from Deep Diving and Good Life. Was that a fun episode to be involved with? Well, that was great fun, because that was written by Clive Exton. Felicity Kendall had another job, so he had to kind of semi-replace her character for uh, a fellow detective. So he wrote it for me. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He said, I've written 
you do I've written and I was thrilled so I said yeah of course I'd love to do it and um and that that was that was that so Felicity Kendall I think she appeared at the beginning and then fell off something that's right yeah she fell off some scaffolding which <laughs> yeah. was her excuse for not being there and then maybe she turned up at the end again I can't remember but I took over her her duties as a <laughs> brilliant and uh, it was great fun yeah you're a brave girl aren't you no, I don't think so. Oh, I'm sure you are. Listen, I need a favour. You know that commentary I do on the roof? No. I did it last week. Of course, you weren't here last week, were you? Anyway, now they want me to do it every week. I go up to the top of that scaffolding by the house with a camera and do a resume of all the work we've done. Right. Well, I only found out when I did it. I've got acrophobia. You're afraid of heights. Will you do it for me? Me? Is there any sort of classic sitcom character in history that you wish you could have played if you if you could? Uh, I know theatre is mainly your thing, but is, is there one? Have you ever hankered to play Sybil Fawlty, for example, or any particular character that you thought you'd like to have had a stab at? I've never thought about it. Never thought about it. Mm. I, I I couldn't answer you off the top of my head because it just hasn't. No. Well, I'll think about it now. I'll start getting <laughs> rapidly. Envy is going, why is it in me? <laughs> you can email us later. It's fine. I could never have played Sybil Fawlty. That is such a brilliant performance. Mm. How she came up with that, God alone knows. It's a piece of total genius. And, of course, it wasn't even as it was written because John Cleese and, and Connie Booth wrote a quite different part than the one Prunella Scales ended up giving. So I have not. She made it her own. Yeah, an amazing performance, really. Absolutely amazing, wonderful, wonderful. A, a character you couldn't, you couldn't make it up. You know, you couldn't have written that character. She'd have to have come to it herself because it, it's there's a lot of subtlety involved in it. Mm. No, I heard a fantastic interview about the making of it, in which they said precisely that. They they'd been a bit worried about her as well, thinking, "Oh, I'm not sure this is this is going to work." And of course, she's totally brilliant. Yeah. Bloody hell, Ralphie, what a dreadful kitchen. Well, I've prepared a Kate or not Kate quiz where I have some lines which may or may not have been Kate. I'll tell you the way I've structured this. Kate as a character, not that you are expected to remember much about this from so many years ago. She was sort of the master of very acerbic lines and put downs, generally directed at Kirk St. Moritz. She has a lot of brilliant John Sullivan written lines. And I've mixed up these these quotes with some from famous movies and things. So you can guess whether it was Kate or whether it perhaps wasn't Kate. Does that sound okay? Yeah, these are going to be lines I wish I'd said. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll start with this one for you. You foul, loathsome, evil little cockroach. <laughs> uh, I don't think I said that. You're correct. That was Hermione Granger in Harry Potter. So well done. It sounds very Kate, though. It sounds very Kate-like. It does sound very Kate-like, actually. Uh, too many too many syllables. Uh, okay, here's another one for you. You are a seedy, pathetic little person who has about as much appeal to me as an ear infection. I said that. You did say that. Well done. <laughs> See? You're better than you thought. <laughs> another one for you. They made a book about his exploits behind the Iron Curtain. It's called Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Dickhead. Didn't say it. Yes, that was a Kateism. Dickhead? Yeah. I mean, it's a good line. It's, what, oh, it's one of my favourites. She calls Kirk a dickhead a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's a great line. I love that new aftershave you're wearing. What is it, pepperoni and onion? Didn't say it. Well, technically speaking, you did say it, but you were playing Bill in 2.4 Children. I was going to say, but only because I recognise that line from somewhere, but I don't think pepper, pepperami or pepperoni or whatever it is existed. I think historically it couldn't have been John. Correct. You do better. That's three out of four, I think. Well done. Uh, I've got a few others. You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid, you have no taste, a lousy sense of humour, and you smell. Yeah, I think I could have said that. I think this is one that you wish you'd said, because this was Cher in Witches of Eastwick to Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Great. Great line. You smell was not quite Kate. Mm. 
You're the most pathetically witless, boring, objectionable, loathsome, foul-brained, festering saw that ever climbed out from beneath a slimy stone. I must have said that. You did. You did say that one. <laughs> well done. <laughs> and then uh, finally... How did I learn it? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 that is impressive to have said. I wonder how many takes it needed. <laughs> I haven't paid good money to come here and be insulted by this cretinous cowboy. Paid good money. Well, it sounds like it could be Kate, but paid. They, but then they paid. Do you know what? I'm going to give you that because I. She did say it, and to me, there was no other reference to the one-to-one club being something that you paid for. No, but she did say that one. I'm not good. I'm not doing very well though. <laughs> I think you are. These 38 years are yeah. really taking their toll on me. <laughs> I give you one more. Um, I'll use small words so that you'll be sure you understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. I said that somewhere. You may have done, but you may have been quoting Wesley and the Princess Bride at the time. Okay. (laughs) It may be one of those that just goes in. Oh, dear. It must have just gone in by osmosis. Is that a film you've watched a lot, maybe? No, I saw it once, only because I was working with Mel Smith, and he was in it, and I thought I ought to watch it. Uh, and otherwise I don't think I would have seen it. Excellent. (laughs) Mel Smith, I would have loved to... Do you know what? I wish you'd do Colin Sandwich, one series. That'd be great. You know that Mel Smith sitcom from the 80s? Oh, goodness. I'd forgotten that. I've never heard of that. Yeah, well, you can't interview him either. So sad. No. Mm. What is it about comedy? I think we're the kiss of death, to be honest with you. (laughs) Well, I shouldn't say that to you, but... (laughs) Clinging on here. <laughs> and can people still buy tickets to your to your uh, current production of the children? They can, but it's only going to be on. I mean, it's not on tonight. It's only going to be on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Now it's so sad. We had to lose so many of the performances. They're thinking mm. about bringing it back in the summer now. Such a good play, real shame. But I mean, putting on a play at the moment—it's just a nightmare. I just did one yeah. with, with Griff Reese Jones and. Um, Janie D and I you know we thought well it'll be packed really wasn't because people are not not coming out to the theatre unless it's a big musical they're prepared to pay god knows what to go to a big musical but trying to put a play on at the moment even if it's funny is um tough mm, I bet the arts have been systematically underfunded as well so it's it's just going to get worse I think isn't it sadly I don't I, don't, I can't work out where it's going to go very, very strange moment. I can't work out what people are really headed for and why. I don't know. I, I, I fear that the core theatre audience, especially out of London, are not really being catered for and are just losing the habit. Um, so it's, it's very sad because I've always been a great champion of um, regional theatre and touring and out of London. I think you're right about the habit thing. There's been a, a shift in, in the, our approach to everything over the past two, three years. It's Yeah, I mean, it was getting bad before before then. And yeah. now, I don't know, might have just put the lid on it. But, you know, theatre has a funny way of coming back. It might rally. A whole hopefully, song. yeah. Mm. Good luck. And hopefully the rest of this run for you uh, goes well over the next yeah. couple of weekends. Thank you very much. Wonderful it's hard sometimes when you've got questions that you want to ask but you want to listen <laughs> i want to listen to what you're saying and it was it was fascinating so yeah we really appreciate it thank you oh it's a pleasure well good luck i'm a great fan of podcasts <laughs> as i've said thank, thank you thank you very much nice to meet you lovely to meet okay. you thank you take care bye seems we've sung love's last song dear john that was so fascinating. She was so interesting. Very friendly, wasn't she? Yeah. I, I found that as, as she was talking, she was she was knocking the questions off because she was touching yeah. on all the things that we were going <laughs> to ask her, which is brilliant. Exactly, that, yeah. that just makes it even easier because it, it feels more like, it felt like a conversation. It, mm. She had answers for even the the Dear John stuff where you, we were thinking like, oh, she's not going to even remember it. She was really interesting. And I found, like I said, having to have a question queued up but listening to what she was saying because it was so fascinating 
Mm. Kept ripping paper. Could you hear a ripping paper? No, I didn't. Oh, no. But obviously, when someone like that's giving up the time, you're not going to Can you go, stop ripping that paper, please? You're just making a bit of a nuisance to yourself. Play the game, love. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> that not all the... God, the the, um, the 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 Gary Olsen stuff. Blimey, that's just really poignant stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she was she was lovely. Yeah. It was, it was nice to hear her talk about like Peter Blake and, and, and Ralph Bates so fondly. Hmm. Because you like to think that when some when like a TV show like that, that that everybody gets on and that everybody's like best mates, but it did it did sound like they were actually really close and 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 a friendship group rather than just a group of people working together. That's quite nice. Yeah, I mm. thought so. So next week's episode, Al, is the Christmas special. Join us next week for series two, episode seven. Kate returns. Oh, it's bittersweet. I'm looking forward to it, but I don't want it to finish. I was waiting for you to to, to steal my thunder. And go, Tiddy. <laughs> yeah, because I thought you were going to steal my thunder, so I had one lined up. Oh, did you? Well, I'll, yeah. I'll steal it for you. Hang on, I'll do it again, and then All you right. can sweep in with your, with your new creation. Okay, you ready? All right. I'll see thee. I forgot what it is. <laughs> <laughs>